You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Westwood One Network. And it is finally Friday, July 27th, an end of this crazy week for me. I already have such a massive headache. And I know some of you are going to be mad at me for not doing a Foreign Policy Friday today, uh, but we definitely did cover a lot of foreign policy this week, particularly on the Wednesday show. But because of what's going on with Jim Jordan running for speaker, and as I mentioned yesterday, how important I think this opportunity is, I wanted you to hear from one of the best members of Congress who was one of the first to support uh, Jim Jordan out of the gate on, on the significance of this and opportunities ahead um, today we're joined by Congressman Andy Biggs of the 5th District of Arizona, the Gilbert area in eastern uh, Maricopa County. Um, this guy really uh, takes to heart our adage uh, of, of not just being a vote but a voice. He puts out copious writings, um, and I even think he has his own show. Uh, hey, Andy, how you doing? Good, Daniel. Good to be with you. Yeah, do, do you have your own Great. podcast? Is that Did I get that right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I do have my own podcast. It's, it's called What's the Bigs Idea, which is – that? come on, Daniel. you got to say that's pretty clever. Okay, <laughs> you can get it to the you can well, get What's the, the Bigs stuff. Idea? So um, we're, yeah. we're going to link to that in show notes so people know where, where to find you. And, and that's what I always say. You know, you're not just a vote because there aren't too many votes because they refuse to bring up good legislation. Um, but you could be a voice, right. especially nowadays. Right, you know, and, and that's exactly right. Sometimes you have to be out there uh, talking, and that's, that's been my goal. That's why I write. I think I published uh, 40 or 50 op-eds last year. Uh, I do the podcast. I do uh, as much radio and TV. I, I, I want to get the word out there for conservatives to hear. And, and uh, I remember that uh, when I was a younger, younger person, it was very – I felt isolated as a conservative when I was on – uh, going to grad school and whatnot. And so I think we really need to uh, get the word out, rally the troops, let people know they're not alone, uh, that actually I still think we're a right-leaning country, um, the majority. And so we need to uh, get the message out, reinforce it, and let people feel very comfortable with the conservative ideology. And that's really where I wanted to start with the speaker's race. What frustrates a lot of us is we're not dumb. We understand that as it relates to cultural institutions, we're swimming upstream. Um, We get the education problems, some of the demographics, people being brainwashed. But by golly, the country is not as far left as where the political class is taking it. And, you know, I was talking with your colleague Jeff Duncan recently at a great piece of legislation uh, going after these localities that allow non-citizens to vote. And nobody wants that. And then as we were talking, The Hill had an article where 70, they just pulled it, 72 percent don't want them voting. You know, and, and leadership right. won't bring it to the floor. And, and it's July 27th. It's not even August. And they're working. Yeah. Aren't they gone until Labor Day? Yeah. You know, I yeah. First, the Duncan legislation I co-sponsored because it's the right thing, and it is what most Americans want. 
And uh, that's why it's mind-boggling. But, but here we are. You're right, Daniel. We just left. I think I'm the only person still in my office in Washington, D.C., in Congress on the House side. The Senate's still going through nominations, but the House left. <laughs> and um, I, I'm, I'm baffled by it. We've got, we've got budget bills. I think we've got eight or nine budget, or excuse me, appropriations bills we have to do because the, the budget expires at the end of September 30th. So you've got, we've got, it's not like we don't have a lot of work to do. It's that we simply aren't going to do the work. It isn't like we, we aren't going to pass out a bunch of bills. We are. We're going to pass, pass out a bunch of bills. They're going to increase your spending. They're going to increase your regulation. And it's going to be a handful of us that are saying, hey, look, if, if you're going to be a change agent, which I know it's odd to say a conservative is a change agent, but, but we are. The conservatives are the change agents here. We have to act, and we have to be here in session in order to act. And if you can't act, then we get back to what you were talking about. You have to be the voice out there. So the people will rise up and express themselves uh, like they did in that uh, the election uh, for the president in 2016. Be a change agent. Demand your congressmen and women be change agents and, uh, and quit spending money, quit regulating, and uh, return to separation of powers both horizontally and vertically. This, this whole set of things that we believe, and, and let's not give uh, illegals the right to vote on top of everything. So, no, and that's the thing. And so, well, Daniel, you know, you were talking about Jim Jordan, and I don't, I don't want to just keep rambling on here, but let me just say, all of this leads into Jim Jordan's candidacy for a speaker for speakership. If you if you want to, if you want change in Congress, um, you know, and, and and these are you know, I Kevin and 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 uh, uh, Paul Ryan, these are. These are congenial uh, gentlemen. They're, you know, I, I smile, we smile, we talk, we have, uh, you know, warm conversations. But if you want to change the trajectory of what happens in Congress, then somebody like Jim Jordan needs to be at the helm because we, we, we need to get back to regular order. That is to say we're going to have full debates, we're going to have uh, dis- discussion, you're going to see bills come up, you're going to see... Uh, the transparency that happens when you're voting on single-issue bills instead of these omnibuses or minibuses that have two, five, ten, sometimes twenty or more individual bills in there, and they're doing it to, to basically leverage votes. This is uh, this is not what the American people want. I don't think it's what the founders wanted. I think the, if you look back at the earliest part of this country uh, when there was this uh, uh, when we was first starting off on the path of a new nation, they they had a different approach. And so now we've gotten to this approach where we're going to ram and cram all this stuff through, and maybe some of it's good, maybe some of it's bad. And the way you stop that is you get somebody like Jim Jordan who's going to basically open up the process again. That's, that, that's my opinion. That's why I support Jim. And, and that's the thing. Like a lot of people, you know, a couple of people even uh, – question me, A, as a conservative, you're complaining Congress is not in enough. Well, what do you mean? I don't want legislating. And the point I made is that you know, there was a bloodless coup over the last number of decades and certainly accelerating in recent years that you know government has crept into all the areas it shouldn't be in and then the areas that it actually does need to be, which is has grown not not the number of areas, but the significance of the area, namely borders and national security because of the complexity of the world. There are a lot of things you have to deal with, and you, especially if you don't want to have 20 bills compiled together. You know, They always complain they don't have legislative time. 
I don't understand why they're going on vacation for six weeks when I could think of a hundred pieces of legislation that are good policy and good politics um, that reverse a lot of this, and yet. You know, I, I was going through with, with with some of our staff here. We're trying to compile a list of a hundred winning pieces of legislation. You know, from from people like yourself and Duncan and Ron DeSantis and you know a lot of the Freedom Caucus members and some others, um, even some more establishment members that have good individual bills that they just will not see the light of day on the floor. I, I don't. You know, I, I think of Davis Oliver the. Comprehensive interior enforcement bill that deals with sanctuary cities, mm-hmm. deals with criminal aliens. It passed the House Judiciary Committee twice in two successive Congresses, and it it, it won't it won't see floor action. Right? No. Uh, you know, as, as someone who I have one of my bills got crammed into that little omnibus number, um, and, and it's good. And uh, you know, so you have you have a, a, a myriad of problems here. Number one is is uh, is a few people can control floor action here, right? So that's always a problem. Um, but that's always normal in a legislative body. I mean, I get that. But then you also have, you're dealing with the Senate. So where when we do pass decent legislation, good legislation, it's, it, it gets parked in the Senate. I mean, they've got like five, 600 bills over there. And believe me, not all of them are good. But they're sitting there and the Senate's not doing it, uh, anything about it because they've got this uh, arcane 60-vote rule which is not designed to allow the American people to be represented by the U.S. senators, but instead to prevent U.S. senators from being held accountable for taking hard votes. That's why the 60-vote rule is in place. And so um, it, it, it's mind-boggling. Again, I, I get to this thing. is The, the other aspect to this, Daniel, is, is so our leadership sometimes plays not to lose, right? They don't play to win. They play not to lose. <laughs> And, and so, they, so they're saying, well, we're only going to do a bill that we think that the Senate will vote on. Well, that, oh. that doesn't work. You know what I mean? It just doesn't really work because who can predict what the Senate will vote on won't vote on? See, Instead, see, we should be voting on the best possible hmm. policy that we can get out of this body. And, and I think you can get all kinds of great policy out of it. I think most Republicans in our conference who would vote for this they want a balanced budget. I think they want 12 appropriation bills that will uh, balance the budget. I think they want the reforms necessary to, to have a balanced budget, to take care of our national and border security, to eliminate waste, to reduce regulation. Now, those are, those are winning legislative ideas. But if you're playing not to lose, then you're not going to put them up there necessarily because you think, ah, well, you know, we'd lose it in the Senate. That's a problem. And this is what I don't understand. It all gets back to the budget because that's the leverage. You know, in, in order to pass legislation, you need all three bodies to agree. But, you know, what they consider must-pass budget, um, well, that, there you have the leverage to put in what you want. And, and you know, I look into the long term, and Republicans mm-hmm. will not get 60 seats in the Senate. That, that is a fact. That is never happening. They are not getting 60 seats. And not only that, if you really look at the Senate conference, even the most liberal House Republicans uh, look like James Madison compared to the Senate Republicans, except for literally a handful of them. I mean, so you're right. Nothing good will – very little will ever come out of that Senate. But I think is the point you're articulating that, look – you have more leverage in the House because you have the body that's lean and mean where you have the ability to do things pretty quickly with a simple majority. So if you have control, 
why not have leadership put bills every week that address the news cycle, but in a way that fits our narrative, that puts the other side on defense, that's good policy, and you could go home to your district and, and tout it, not like these dumb suspension bills they're, they're, they're voting on, and they go on the Sunday shows, and the leadership you know, promotes them, they put the other side on defense, and then you stare down the Senate, and then you have the president using his bully pulpit to do that. Um, you, you have to have a fight, and then you do that on a budget bill. Well, it's like, well, the Senate won't pass it. Well, how come the narrative is the House won't pass your garbage? That's exactly right. I mean, so you think about it, and, and, you, and, you, and you got this exactly. You put the other side on the defensive, and, and there's two sides that we have to put on the defensive. You have to put your our, our competitive party, which is the Democrats. They need to go, be on the defensive, having to explain why they don't want this good policy. But if you do good measures from the House and put them to the Senate, then the Senate is, is on the defensive. They have to, uh, they are pressured. When you're not doing bills uh, in, in this mode of we can't, we're not going to get it passed, so we're not going to do our best possible bill, we're going to try to do our, you immediately drop to the lowest common denominator. That's what you do. Yep. You look, you, and it isn't even your own com- lowest common denominator, it's the Senate's lowest common denominator. <laughs> and so that means you can't get out there and create, which what you, you and I are talking about, what we're trying to do today even, you can't create a narrative that wins because your bill is got so many flaws and problems you still have to explain and defense, defend your bill that, that, that the Senate's probably not going to do anything about anyway. But if you did the best possible bill, now you can go out and proudly proclaim, this is what we stand for. This is why you voted for us. This is the Republican Party platform. This is what we believe in. And, and guess what? Then the Senate has to come out and explain to the world. Whoever's explaining, I guarantee you, is losing. And if and when we do the, the worst bill we possibly can to start off with, we're losing because we have to explain that over and over and over again. It, it, exactly. Whoever's explaining is losing. And, you know, it's the other side always directing the narrative. And we just say, you know, Ryan and McCarthy, their modus operandi is, like you said, kind of run out the clock. And, and, yeah, on net, they've passed a couple of better bills than the, than the um, Senate on regulations, a better Dodd-Frank bill. Um, but I, right. you know, even the good bills, I don't see them messaging. I don't see them pounding the lectern the way the Democrats do, going on the shows, you know, being that voice, not just a vote but a voice. And then um, you know, the only way to get them to reform the 60-vote threshold, which I think there's a lot of things you could do even short of just fully repealing it that will you know, ensure that a simple minority can't block every single bill. Um, the only way to do it is by jamming them, is by you – know, so – let's talk about September. Here's my concern about September. We have the Supreme Court um, confirmation hearing, and that's going to consume everyone's energy. And my fear is that this is the last chance to, A, influence the outcome of the election, but also really to accomplish our border priorities, um, which which are very grave, what is going on um, with with the flood of, of criminal aliens and drugs and gangs. Um, even the special interest aliens, you know, from the Middle East coming in, and my fear right. is that, you know, we've, by my count, we've punted five times. Not, not even punted. We've actually thrown interceptions on five budget bills, including the debt ceiling in February. But dating back to spring of 2017, the next time, no, the next time. Oh, we'll do it the next time. 
And then Trump said, never again. He said in March, I'm not signing garbage like this again. And then now I'm seeing Ryan and McConnell are getting together and saying, yeah, we got to avoid a shutdown. Uh, yeah, let's let's punt till after the election. Um, what's going to yeah. change? They're not going to get 60 votes then either. No, that's exactly right. So, so what's what's so this is the this is what I consider to be the really bad news, and I don't mean to be a pessimist here, but but what's going to happen is we've done what three or four uh, uh, appropriations bills. You need to do eight more in the House, and then the Senate needs to get them all out by September 30th. That's not happening. You and I both know it. Anybody that's around here knows that's not going to happen. Result, another continuing resolution, which is what you're calling a punt, maybe an interception. It's a fumble. Whatever it is, you're not, you're not, you're not moving the ball forward toward the goal line, right? So, so what's going to happen is they're going to do a continuing resolution. That continuing resolution will be offensive to uh, uh, most of the Republican conference. And the, most of the Republican conference will vote for it, but most of them will be offended by it. They'll be offended by the process, number one. They'll be offended by what is in the, the bill, number two, and, uh, but they'll still vote for it. In the meantime, it goes over to the Senate. The Senate is going to then lard it up with enough uh, material so they can get the votes to get that bill out. And, it, and it's going to go guaranteed it's going to go at least to November 15th, because that's a few days, it's a week or so after the midterm election. And then, and then you got to go back in and do another CR and look for it. My guess is you're going to get two more CRs after that. Um, uh, and then you start a whole new round of ostensible appropriations, but those will all also end up in CRs. And that is the problem. That's why I'm supporting Jim Jordan. I, I really believe somebody like Jim Jordan is necessary to come in and, and stand up, stand up and say no more. No more. We're going to have an open appropriations process. And what that means is I get to go down there with my five or six amendments. I get to argue them. The other side can debate them. And we vote them up or down. And then, then the bill that comes out is reflective of, for good or ill, of the body. And that's what you don't see. And you don't see it with CRs. And, and that's that's... That's why we're never going to bring this budget under control as long as you you do a two- or three-month CR and then follow this by a six-month CR. It's just not going to work. And, and when I say CR, for people who don't know, that's a continuing resolution. It's a short-term spending bill. It's not a short-term budget. It's a short-term spending bill and the emphasis on spending. You know, I'd be remiss not to bring this up with someone like you um... – you know what you're talking about is not just a failure of conservatism in Congress. It's certainly that's certainly true. Even though Republicans controlled the House for 20 of the last 24 years, the body closest to the people with the easiest leverage. Um, we should have been doing a lot of good stuff, and we haven't. We've been go- going backwards. But part of why we're going backwards is because the institution itself, even you know whether you're liberal or conservative, has become a joke. That the courts have now become the final arbiter of every political issue. So, Andy, you know, we, we talk about this a lot offline, but I, I'm just working on a piece right now. Just in the last 72 hours, I've seen courts basically say you can't deport anyone who doesn't have a criminal record. Temporary protected status is permanent status for Trump because Trump's a racist. Um, they've mandated minimum wage in Alabama. You have to have it now. Um, they've struck down like the fifth um, abortion regulation in Indiana. Um, a whole no- uh, Medicaid has to cover uh, sex change operations. Um, 
adoption agencies in Phil Catholic adoption agencies in Philadelphia have to um, uh, you know place kids in with, with same sex uh, couples, and then a whole bunch of election stuff you know blocking election integrity laws, which I know in Arizona you've had this huge problem with the Ninth Circuit in that. My fear is it's not just that we're okay. We didn't. We don't get our riders. It's the status quo. It's that when we're at the peak of our power, we're we're still. If we don't take Congress to address this, we're actually moving backwards because they're winning fifty year. I would say cultural, but now even fiscal issues. They're getting the courts are getting involved in overnight without firing a shot, without having to stand for election, without having reprisal from the voters because the courts, they could never accomplish any of this in a legislature. Is there any effort among the conservatives in the House to deal with this? Well, first of all, Daniel, uh, everyone needs to know what a great uh, uh, champion of separation of powers, which is really what we're talking about here. The judiciary is so far outside its scope and the legislature has, has receded. Uh, I mean, this is exactly the opposite of what uh, people like James Madison thought would happen. They thought that that the that we'd be worried about the legislative branch really overstepping, but it isn't. It's the judicial branch and actually the executive branch agencies. So within Congress, there is a there are, uh, there are a number of people who feel like I do, and we're we're trying to address this. I mean, everything from you need to split the Ninth Circuit to um, we we need to look at dis- discipline of the uh, of the courts that are usurping uh, legislative power. I mean, the, the fact that what, what you're talking about that has, has these opinions that have come out in the last 72 hours, that's, a, that's incredibly bad it, because there is no accountability to the courts right now, and the Congress has abdicated, quite frankly, its checks and balances. And those checks and balances, everything from uh, stripping jurisdiction uh, because the only uh, mandated court is uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. So you could strip the jurisdiction. You could reduce it or eliminate uh, courts and circuits if you, had, if, you had, if you had the will. You could uh, you check them with the uh, checkbook itself because we control the purse strings on that. There, there are things we can do. You could take individual judges who are acting extra-constitutionally, and you could, uh, you could censure, uh, you could... You could impeach. You can do any myriad of things, but right now, um, there that it's it's a it's a small minority of even the Republican conference that's willing to step out on that tree limb and fight this battle. And you know, unfortunately, fortunately, I do have some friends that are helping me step out there on the limb who want to fight this battle. Everybody from from a Massey to a Mosh to to Jim Jordan, the Freedom Caucus guys. Uh, really willing to go out there and and take on the judiciary, but you know, if, as long as we have forty five, fifty, sixty votes, uh, <laughs> it's an up it's an uphill slog. And you know that, and I know that. But we're going to continue. We and it's it's but it's a battle worth fighting, even if we know that that we may temporarily have a setback, because until we start carrying uh, these rocks uphill and get to the top of the hill, we won't be able to build the altar, which is the true separation of powers, both horizontally and vertically, we won't be able to bring the judiciary back within its proper scope. We won't be able to bring the executive agencies back within their scope and restore us to a balanced government between the federal and the state system. We have to keep taking the battle battle and be willing to take it on the chin. And that's where we are. 
uh, 50 or 60 votes strong, but that's that's uh, that's not quite enough. And I when think you need 218 in the House. But but I think what you're saying, what you've been saying, is that, and I've got, you know, I, look, I've been very down on a lot of your uh, other non 50, 60 colleagues, but I think what what I sense you're saying is that. Unlike Senate Republicans, the overwhelming majority of them, if you had the – they're followers. They're not going to lead on this. But if you had the right leadership, they're not going to push back against it. Right. I think, I think um, this body is just like so many bodies. They, they want to have a leader, and they want to follow that leader. And the other thing, too, is as we carry those, the, this message up the hill, it, and people like you are doing a great job disseminating this message – it starts resonating with people. People begin to understand, wait a second, this judge is appointed, by the way, it's not for life. The Constitution doesn't say for life, it says for term of good conduct, right? So, Bingo. So good behavior, actually. So they, they can't sit there forever. If they're behaving badly, abusing the Constitution, violating their oath of office, Congress has the obligation to do something. And if, if we are taking that up the hill, it will begin to resonate. People will understand uh, that you you can't uh, sit there as a judge with impunity and just create laws out of thin air because that's what you want. Uh, and and you know what? That's what the left is doing. They can't win at the ballot box right now, so they're trying to win at the litigation box, which is the courts. And, and they're certainly doing a good job of it. Like I said, just in any given week, they're doing more in the courts than really what they're able to do, even even when they had all three branches of government, you know, because the the grind in Congress sometimes benefits us. Um, but on on the court level, they could, they could just shop it anywhere, and it takes years, if ever, to get swatted down by the courts. I know you got to run, um, but I, just one one thing I, I have to add, you know bring up immigration. Um, you're from Arizona, yeah. as you know. It's a chapter in my book. Uh, I have a you know big place in my heart for Arizona. Um, you know, as a representative. The, the core of the social contract, the, the underpinnings of our declaration of the Constitution, the job of government is to pro, is to provide a sanctuary for our citizens to protect life, liberty, and property from internal and external. On a state level, it's mainly, mainly internal threats. On a federal level, mainly external threats. That That's government in a nutshell. Right? Nothing more, nothing less. It's not getting involved right. in financial services, healthcare, agriculture. That, that's, that's really the, the core job. And I look at um, this breach of the social contract in your state. As of 2013, it was estimated that there were 630,000 illegal aliens in Arizona. Um, that, that's a population of foreign invaders larger than the total population of any single colony at the time of our founding. Over 10% of the state's public school population is composed of illegals. Um, you know, All the costs together, according to FAIR, is $2.4 billion a year. Um, according to Arizona Department of Corrections, um, illegals comprise 17% of the, po- of the prison population and 22% in your home uh, – uh, 22% of felony defendants in Maricopa County. I, I, how is this not an act of war? I mean what other con- – no other country has done something like this to us. What is the sentiment in your home state, and how does this keep going on? Well, let me just add one more statistic for you. Um, the vast majority – I don't want to say vast majority. A disproportional plurality of the violent crimes and the violent criminals who are in the Department of Corrections in Arizona are illegally in this country. So they're illegal. 
you know, they're illegal in the, in the country. They commit a violent crime at a disproportionately high rate, if I can put it that way. Um, so why does this continue? Well, it continues because um, we have uh, we have the left is motivated. The Democrats want these people in because they, I mean, that's why you have cities that they're saying, well, we're going to San Francisco, we're going to let people who are here illegally vote because they will vote. Democrats into power. That's what the Democrats believe. You have people who say, well, we have a labor shortage of unskilled labor, so we want them to come into the country. Um, and the reality is, if, if we were to look at this, the first thing we would do is we would solve the border issue. And I, that's why I support a border wall. I actually just uh, uh, will be introducing uh, a, a comprehensive border wall, which will give them ways to pay for the border wall. Um, as well. Um, and you would build that border wall. You would use the technology that we already have uh, lots of. I've talked, been down to the border many times. We have technology down there. They know how to use it. But we don't have border patrol agents and the border patrol agents to, to respond. So even if you can track people on the border, we can't get border, enough border patrol agents down there. Why is that? Because in the previous administration, they cut their pay. So uh, my bill restores pay. So that's important. So you have so in my district, in, in Arizona, my home state of Arizona, it is still an, a huge issue. Um, and so uh, in a, in it needs to be resolved. So the first thing you do, you'd, solve your, you'd, you'd take care of the border security. You'd quit allowing this flood to come across. And every time, Daniel, you know this, it, it's, a, it's a simple economic. You learn this in, in the, the first time you go to any either micro or macroeconomic class. It is this. People respond to incentives, and our incentives in this country are to say, okay, if you're, if you're born here, even though you're illegally in the country, you have a child born here, they're legal, and now you're going to be able to um, apply through them to obtain citizenship. That's, that's what we call an incentive for behavior. If you come here and you claim asylum, we're going to hold you for a short period of time. We're going to give you a ticket to come back to a court at a later date. That's an incentive to stay to come in this country illegally. If you if you come in here and you overstay your visa, we're not going to track you down. That's an incentive to overstay your visa. People respond to this, so let's re we need to create incentives. We need to increase border patrol agent, agent pay. You do that, we're going to have more more troops on the ground. So when people do get through, let me stop because in my where I live, Gilbert. We are just north of the Tucson corridor. The Tucson corridor is the number one drug and, tra and human yep. traffic sm smuggling corridor along the entire southwest uh, uh, southern border, which means it's the, the the biggest, most porous border in the world. Do you find that intriguing? I find it intriguing and, and, and absolutely maddening to boot. And so uh, the, the key is, first thing, um, take, stop the border uh, uh, incursions. The second thing, you got to take away the incentives. The third thing, you have to, uh, you have to enforce your internal laws. You do those three things, we can have a discussion. Then, if we're short certain employers, then you can start having these meaningful discussions yeah. on how you how you want to have immigration into your country. But as long as those three things are not taken care of, it's all visceral, and it's and we're at a disadvantage as citizens of the United States of America. And one of the things I've been trying to educate your colleagues on, which I just find is one of the most mind-blowing displays of hypocrisy that I've ever seen in politics is that 
they have voted on dozens upon dozens of bills last month to address what they call the opioid crisis. It is now incontrovertibly clear from the updated CDC data that the entirety of the baseline increase, I don't mean like, you know, the natural amount that we've had for 15, 20, 25 years, but, you know, when we talk about 400% increases, when did that happen? Circa 2014, with the surge of the UACs and the collapse of interior enforcement, criminal alien networks, it is all, all the baseline increase is illicit drugs, not prescription drugs. Um, that's correct. And it's coming from two places that's, like Tucson. That, that's right, the, two, the Tucson quarter, and that's right. And, and you know, and that's why, let, let me give you one last example before, before we wrap. But I, I mean, so we have checkpoints along the, uh, uh, the border corridors, right? But we have so few border patrol officers, and, and I'm not saying anything that, that the drug cartels don't know, is, is it's a show, it's a show, it's a Potemkin village. What happens is you've got enough staffing to run your checkpoint, but you have no staffing. So what'll happen is somebody, they'll, they'll, they'll drive up within uh, sight of the, of the uh, checkpoint, they'll take their load, they'll drop it off in the desert, or, or they'll carry it around and meet their ride on the other side of the checkpoint. Because we don't have anybody, anybody can stop them and interdict them uh, away from the checkpoint because we don't have enough border patrol agents. And they're, they're bringing in fentanyl and other opioid uh, drugs into the country. That's what's happened. That's where your increase is. And, um, you know, it, 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 in my opinion, it's, it, is a lot of the reaction that we do is just purely reactionary for uh, policy purposes. Yeah, I mean, it's so. never brought up. It is literally never brought up. If, if you came from Mars, you would think it's all doctors, it's all and, – and it literally – there was a baseline that was always there. It's actually gone down because prescriptions have been severely – cut off and in many cases we're actually hurting stable chronic pain patients that never overdose then they're they're not prone to it um and then we're letting in all the um all the criminal alien networks that you know service this and then we allow them to go undetected in the major hubs because a lot of the major hubs are are sanctuaries and i just i'm just astounded now the senate's going to take it up um next month and uh i i just there's nobody being a voice for this, um, which leads me to my final right. thing. Do you think it's time, especially with Jim Jordan being maybe that vehicle for a new document, a new message, a new taxpayer bill of rights, a new contract with America? Well, uh, let's just say that there's been uh, – the previous contract with America has been breached. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, there's been a breach of contract there. So – so, I mean, you know, I, I, that, I, I don't know if you need a contract with America. We've got the ultimate contract with America is the, is the United States Constitution. I mean, it, it is that simple. If we were to bring everybody, every federal government entity, the, the three separate branches, back within the scope of the Constitu- United States Constitution, and, that, and I'm talking vis-a-vis the states as well, so that the states, they, they, they largely do their own thing. Uh, you know, the, the federal government doesn't do intrastate commerce uh, re- re- regulation, does interstate commerce regulation. We would have a sense of freedom in this country. 
we would see the GDP growth exceed uh, this 5% goal that we have. We would have this, uh, uh, this tremendous and overwhelming, um, uh, in my opinion, resurgence, everything from meaningful art, meaningful literature. Uh, it, it would be almost paradisiacal in some ways, but certainly a, a, a heaven compared to where we are today. That's the contract that I want to see reimposed. No, I, I see what you mean. The problem is that a lot of it has lost its meaning because there's so much confusion. And I just think, you know, especially as it relates to A, galvanizing our base, but B, um, and you see this in Arizona with some suburban voters that were needlessly hemorrhaging um, because, you know, it's it's just you have the rhinos without a vision. Then you have, you know, some of Trump's personality that kind of overshadows everything. And there's nobody standing up and saying this is what we believe as it relates to the current issues. Um, and I think you know many of our issues are 70, 30 issues if we actually got on the map. So that's just kind of my idea for you know, a, a need to reiterate what we believe in because I think that's, that's gotten lost in, 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 in the soap opera. Yep, yep. Um, it's, there's so much – you're right on, on one, in one sense, Daniel. I, I, I agree with you 100%. The white noise that's out there – uh, makes it very hard to hear uh, the pristine call of of what America is supposed to be about. It makes it very difficult. Uh, the institutions are controlled by the left, uh, and I'm talking about the indoctrinating institutions such as the media, uh, the uh, uh, the universities, the uh, ma- many of the other educational institutions. Very difficult to overcome that, um, and you know, so we have to keep pushing. We just have to keep pushing. You're doing that. I think you're doing a great job. I, I love what you're doing. Uh, people in Congress who, who understand this, we have to keep pushing as well. And that's the, uh, that's, and at some point, uh, you know, this big ship of state will begin to turn uh, and write itself uh, in the uh, turn itself into the right direction. I really believe that. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Congressman Andy Biggs, and thanks for joining us. And uh, I didn't want to take you away too much from from your staff and your work now, so you could get back to your family and uh, at, at least enjoy the ancillary benefit of of a do nothing Congress. Spend more time with your family. Um, <laughs> but what, what, what I'll is be working again? hard all month. Well, what is again? Uh, what what's the Biggs Idea podcast? Um, we'll drive our listeners there so they could hear you every week and uh, read some of your stuff. Uh, thanks again, and, and, and best of luck, and, and do come back, all right? Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, have a great one. Have, and I'll talk to you soon. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Sure. That was Congressman okay. Andy Biggs, and uh, Congressman Biggs is the representative from Gilbert, Arizona, Maricopa County, or at least part of it. It's a massive county, um, largest border county, that's for sure. And I'm telling you, there really aren't too many like him. He he was head and shoulders above everyone else. In my view, the best freshman. Um, I mean, he's just been on every issue. He puts out a release. He puts out an op-ed. He now has a podcast. He's 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 good. He's as good as you want to get. Um, but you know, that's the thing. We need we need a unifying vision, in my view. Um, and I just wanted to in in, in the remaining time here just address the GDP numbers about a unifying vision that we have to have a consistent view that we don't play this binary, shallow, stupid game that some some are playing. And 
some of our some on our side are being very disingenuous with the GDP numbers. Um, and, and, and it's good news, but I want to put in perspective, and I'm going to have an article out explaining this more, What th- that there's a huge difference. It's like it's all of the difference. It's the entire world between a quarterly GDP report and an annual GDP number. Um, it, it's similar to monthly job numbers. I mean they, they fluctuate like anything. Um, but you you look at a full year, and and we actually have a full year, and this is now you can conclude this is the best job market since the '90s and possibly since the '60s. It's an amazing job market in terms of availability of jobs, but in terms of the wages, in terms of economic growth. So you know we all knew that the the two percent growth every quarter made no sense at the best part of the business cycle after the tax cuts. It was bound to go up. When I said I have a theory we're never going to grow like that, I was referring to an annual growth. So here's the dishonest thing. In an effort to make everything about Republican versus Democrat, Trump versus Obama, when there's so many more factors in our economy that are over and beyond every, you know, the control of a president, too many people – you know, Trump Jr. tweeted this out. They're contrasting – the current quarterly GDP numbers under Trump to the annual GDP numbers under Obama. And they're saying, ha ha, he never even made 2%. Now we got 4.1%. First of all, it was 3% they never made. 2% was what they got almost every year. A couple of the bad ones were you know, one, one and a half. Uh, but, um, but, but anyway, they're missing the point. And I don't say this to defend Obama or take anything away from Trump. Or particularly the tax cuts. I say this to so we consistently recognize what our issue was in the Obama years and why we still fundamentally have the same problems that I believe in the long run, unless I'm proven wrong, but until now, I, I think we're going to see that, is not going to fundamentally change, albeit we'll have a temporary um, reprieve because of the tax cuts, which is fine. And that is our allegation, our, our concern about the economy, right, was never that, oh, we never had a quarter of 4 or 5% growth. By my count, under Obama, we had eight quarters of 3% or more and five quarters of 3.9% more, including one that hit 5% and another one that was like 4.8% which is more than the 4.1 that came out now. So and yet we still trashed Obama and I'll exp- and I'll explain in a minute why we were right. But the point is you can't be dishonest and say, "Oh, we got 4.1," then I can say he got 5.1. But the issue was that quarters are based off of a lot of transient factors, very volatile factors that you can have certain stimulus and certain export Shifting and and you um, uh, inventory shifting or certain things that cause consumer spending, but they're not necessarily durable or reflective of a, a, a wealthy population in the long run that you could that could get you to a quarter GDP. But what happened was it was always parlayed with quarters of one two percent GDP. Sometimes we went negative or zero. So that's why on an annualized level. We never got 
we never ultimately got even 3%. We got 2.9 in the best year of Obama, 2015, but we never um, we never got 4 or 5%. That was my theory that I said, look, we haven't gotten 3% economic growth since 2005, I believe. We haven't gotten 4% since the 90s. We haven't gotten 5% since Reagan. I believe that because of the socialism, healthcare the way it is, the manipulated economy essentially planned, market distortions, other regulations, and the Federal Reserve problems with the monetary morphine and getting us addicted to low interest rates and therefore having to raise them when the economy does good and then, and then inhibit the, the booms, that my thesis was that even with tax cuts, we might be able to achieve maybe the year of a tax cut, maybe 3%, and we'll, that's still possible this year. Certainly the fact that we had 4.1 this quarter – but I still believe my thesis that we're not going to see 4 or 5% until we deal with some of that other stuff, the mitigating factors, I think that's true. Now, most of that is not Trump's fault. So it's, not, it's not a rip on Trump, but it's just a reality. Like, like, you know, I, I don't say this to rip on him. I say it to say, look, the tax cuts were great. It accounted for a juiced-up consumer spending, which is good. That shows because people have more – Money both from the individual rates and also the bonuses they got as a result of the corporate tax cuts. But let's not ignore Obamacare, the debt, and the Federal Reserve reform that we need. Don't think that we have the ball in the end zone. We don't. That's, a, that's what I'm saying. We have to have an agenda, not a talking point. Oh, you got 4 point. The economy didn't grow by 4.1%. It grew by 1%. It's... The idea is it is an annualized rate of 4% if it would do this the entire year. But what I'm trying to tell you is now you might say, well, you know, it might. Well, it might, but we've had this five times under Obama too, and it never panned out, and there's a reason for it. Now, again, I don't want to belabor this too much because I, I actually got to run and close it up for the week. But you know, real briefly, what is GDP growth? So some of it's a little BS. You know, it's government's arbitrary way of calculating. But you know, it's a, it's a, it has been a consistent apples to apples comparison over years. So it is worthwhile to definitely use it in, in macroeconomic analysis. But you know, what is GDP? So it's obviously personal consumption. That's that's the big one. The you know the consumer spending. Um, that is, I believe at this point, it's like roughly 67, 68% of our economy. So that's by far the biggest share of the pie. And that's going to have the biggest factor on the GDP numbers. Um, you know, that is your, the goods and services. Um, and that rose by 4%. That, that, Portion of GDP, which is the most responsible for the over, the macro number we got, the top line number of 4.1 percent. Um, final sales of U.S. goods and services rose by 5.1 percent. That that's a number, at least on the charts. They go to like 2013. They go as back as 2013. I have not one one quarter somewhere we got 5 percent. This is five per one. So it's the it's the highest increase in a very long time, and that, that's that's really good. And again, it's because of the low unemployment and the and the tax cuts. They put more money back in the pockets of the consumers. It works every time. And and, and you, you I believe you could 
bendy about that talking point. I think that's right. Tax cuts work. But the answer to this is not to say, oh, let's just only focus on tax cuts and continue the debt because investments actually declined. So investments are number two. Um, that is the second um, – gross private domestic investment is the second component. That actually went backwards a half a percent. Some of that is because of the weakening housing market. Um, it was mainly uh, residential investment, a.k.a. you know housing is the big deal with that. So higher mortgage rates really dampened that, some other factors. Um, and that's, again, because of the problems that with the Federal Reserve, that they made the rates too low, and now is the only time they feel they could raise it because the economy is good. And so it's hurting things. And really, we should never have been dependent on that in the first place. Um, but then you had a whole other thing that probably gave um, uh, another percentage to, to this, which is the third component is net exports, so exports over imports. And um, you know, exports went up relative to last quarter, and that's great. But the problem is that was almost all from the soybeans. It was all about soybeans. Now – this is a classic this is a classic example of why you have to look at three to five quarters, not one, because sometimes the very factors that juiced up that quarter in the long run hurt you, and that's why you don't get sustained growth and in fact you go backwards. And again, that was the rip on Obama. Yes, you had stimulus, yes, you had certain manipulations or certain factors. It got you a quarter here or there, but Often, other factors um, brought it down annually, or that very factor in itself. And in this case, you know, the tariffs are a big thing. You know, my my argument is basically we have the same socialist economy we did under Obama, albeit more debt, cumulative debt, albeit now you have the problem with the tariffs, but on the other end, you have the good part of the tax cuts. So that's that's where we are. Um, so the tariffs were good, ironically, because um, they all, you know, the entire Chinese market just binged like a twenty-five percent increase, binged our soybeans. Why? Because of Trump's tariffs, they expect the Chinese retaliatory tariffs on on American imports now. So, you know, that's why you have the front loading this quarter, but. I'd like to see the next quarters because I have a feeling you're going to see a rubber band effect and then you know it's going to go back the other way. And then the similar same thing goes for the fourth component. Guess what the fourth component of GDP growth is? Again, so you get you have um you have uh, personal consumption expenditures, gross private domestic investment, um net exports and government spending. Yes, government spending is about seventeen point five percent of the economy. That's the of of the pie. Um, that rose by three point five percent. The federal federal share, the uh, state and local, is much lower. Federal share because of the porculus. I mean, so that was the same thing. Obama got some juiced up quarters on that, but our argument is the opposite. That because of that, so you know, if I hire a bunch of people to dig ditches. On a short short-term superficial level, you're going to have um, uh, growth from that in a stupid way. But then in the long run, the misallocation of resources and the accrued debt and now the high interest rates on the, on the interest on the debt to service that, it's going to go backwards in the long run. Unless as conservatives, we suddenly believe that increasing government is the road to prosperity unless we're, we're all Keynesians now. So you see what I'm saying? Like I don't want to 
you know, defending the status quo, like trying to exaggerate how good these numbers are, is not a defense of Trump and conservatism because a lot, most of the economy sans the tax cuts is still the same old problem, problematic economy. So I believe by my calculation, if you would take out the increased government spending, not government spending in totality, meaning the increase from quarter one, I believe it would have lowered it from 4.1 to 3.7. So the entire like kind of like, you know, making it from a good number to a beautiful number four, you know, that came from the, the omnibus bill. I mean, really? So A, it's built on garbage, so it's kind of misleading. And again, you know, there's nothing new about the way it's calculated now. Government spending was always a component of GDP, uh, the way government calculates it. But you should just know that and know that over time this can give us problems because, again, the final factor is the Federal Reserve. This is going to give them a license to raise rates even more. And mixed with our debt and interest on the debt increasing, it's going to – both factors are going to exacerbate each other. Now, Trump has rightfully complained bitterly about the Federal Reserve, but the problem is like he just wants it artificially manipulated low forever, whereas – Really, the solution is to not get them involved in that and get rid of Humphrey uh, Hawkins, the the original what is it, nineteen seventy seven bill that got government that got the Federal Reserve involved in this dual mandate to achieve employment and no no no, just focus on a stable currency. So that's my point, you know, to simply contrast quarterly growth under Trump to annual over. Over Obama to somehow say this is a defense of conservatism is stupid because ironically it's the same socialist factors we ripped on an Obama's era. Now look, if we see next quarter is still like I don't know three point seven percent and the next quarter is four and maybe the fourth quarter is three point two, so you average it out, it's it's a nice solid thing. Okay, then then I'm wrong, and then maybe we haven't yet reached the tipping point and still at the best employment boom. Boyoid by a tax cut, maybe we could still achieve it. I'm just saying the sheer fact that we have the numbers from this quarter alone don't prove that, as was the case under Obama. And in fact, if you peek into some of the numbers, it's very clear that you know there were some you know, healthcare spending, but really the soybean stuff and the increased government spending was a big part of it. Um, so. You know, let, let's let's be consistent here. Let's not lie. I mean, a lot of I don't want to make our people as low information as as the left, and just oh, 4.1 percent. We haven't had 4.1 percent since '99. Uh, no, that's annual. Um, we've had that. We've had five under Obama for a quarter. Don't you know what I'm saying? Our arguments should be able to stand on their own merits. They shouldn't be built on lies and relative. Well, the other side was this. Look, it's better, and really, it's not. Um, again, it's better in the sense that absolutely we would not have gotten 4.1% for this quarter without the tax cuts. Okay, It took a little bit of time to factor in. It looks like it didn't factor in the, in the first quarter, um, factor in the second quarter, and, that, and that's, that's great. I'm not trying to poo-poo it. I'm trying to say let's make the tax cuts permanent, but let's deal with the Federal Reserve. Let's deal with all the other – Status manipulations like ethanol and cafe standards, and you know, fully repeal Sarbanes Oxley and Dodd Frank and Obamacare. Um, and then let's talk.
you know, but this is just, it's just dishonest. It's just dishonest to say 4.1%. We've never, this is amazing. Again, Obama roughly achieved that five times by, by that measure, but it wasn't achieved because like I'm telling you, it ultimately was a false flag because the economy ultimately never grew at that pace. It was fake. It's a projection that if it would keep it up, it would be 4%, but it's never kept it up. That's been the story of this last 13 years. This, this protracted period of languishing, it's not that we never saw a quarter of high GDP growth. It's that we never saw sustained for, for you know, roughly a year. That's the issue that what we were griping about, and that has not yet been negated. That, that problem um, doesn't mean it won't be, but there's certainly no proof that there's anything better now other than the tax cuts to make that happen. Could tax cuts be so amazing that even with all the aforementioned factors, maybe we could I – mean, again, we're not going to get 4% annual. I mean obviously the first quarter alone was 2.2, so just laws of averages, it weighs it down. There's no way we're going to get to that. Um, but you know, maybe we could get three. I don't know, but I just wanted you guys to keep that in mind. Our views need to stand consistently on their own merits. It's, it's really that simple. Um, Anyway, it's been a very productive week, a lot of productive feedback. I've learned a lot from your feedback. Keep it flowing. Email me, tweet me. God bless you all. Enjoy your weekend. Time off. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.